Let's turn to Romans 9 tonight, 9, 27. Normally you wouldn't think that's close to the end of our Romans series, but we've been doing it in kind of a unique way. A very unique way, in fact, Tony. From left to right and right to left. And then all jumbled up. Don't forget 2018 Treasures for Children campaign. Appreciating that this is a little extra burden on all of you during the Christmas season, but I think it's worth it. More blessed to give than receive after all, they tell me. Or he tells us. I got to get back into the rhythm of doing these Wednesdays. Um, the next step in Romans is going to be an unusual one, and I would appreciate your prayers because it's kind of I'm taking kind of a an audacious step, and I'm going to attempt to do. We only have seven more verses. I only have to translate seven more verses in the in the entire epistle. So my next plan is to go through the entire book of Romans. I'm going to do two separate translations of it. The first is going to be a Targumic paraphrase. Remember the Targums? Targums really have their roots in Nehemiah 8.8. They translated or expounded the scriptures during the time of restoration after the exile, and they translated, and then they gave the sense. Now, the Targums are like that. They're the translations of the Old Testament, but they're greatly expanded. They, today, they would have brackets, and they would expand to give the sense of what's being said. And so my intention is to do what I would call a Targumic, Targumic paraphrase, and kind of a new thing, but why not? With the intention of going through the whole of Romans, I'll probably do a reading of it here on three or four separate nights to get through. We'll go through the whole epistle of Romans, literally, verse by verse in a Targumic paraphrase, in a greatly expanded paraphrase, given the context and given the situation that is being addressed, the exigency. Then I'm going to do a real tight translation with that's just really close to a lot of the ones you see, but with some changes. Included in that, there will be bracketed introductions of who's doing the talking. In other words, the whole dialectic between the teacher and Paul and the opposing viewpoints are going to be shown very clearly, evidently, and made manifest so that you'll see that there's a tremendous, what I call a dialectic of contradictories going on in especially Romans 1 through 4, but also we're going to see even in Romans 9, it goes into that. So we, I only have a few, I think it's five or six more verses, and they're all in Romans 8, and that means we're pushing toward the center. Another thing, and I just want to let you know this plan because it's, it's, you've been staying with it for the whole time. This is the 105th message. I may also just quickly summarize Romans 11. We haven't done much of it in Romans, but we did a whole lot of it. In fact, the last segment of Better Call Paul was in Romans 11, and we went through the whole chapter. 
verse by verse, and it showed the universal mercy of God. So I might bring that in with a few more tweaks. Same with Romans 10. And that's even more extraordinary because there is there are three speakers. There's the legalistic speaker, then there's the righteousness of faith, and then there's Paul saying, but I say, at the end. And it's all very, I think it's going to help a lot of people because it's a, an extraordinarily universalistic bent that Paul takes. And that's all tied to the apocalypse or the stunning invasion of Paul's life and the revelation of Jesus Christ that God the Father gave to him. So there'll be a good way to maybe, again, I don't want to second-guess God because I really honestly go, uh, go according to his leading as much as it lies in me. But we may go, and it's interesting because I've developed the doctrine of God-approved livingness, which also happens to be the abbreviation of another epistle. Galatians. And so we may go there next, but in between we may do some free fall, halo jumps, high altitude, low opening, crazy kind of messages. Who, who knows? We'll see. Father, we thank you for this opportunity tonight to meet together. And we pray that as we approach this season of greeting one another with a holy fist bump or salute rather than a holy kiss, we pray that you'll Grant health to our congregation, our families, safety and travels. But most of all, that you'll grant hungry hearts for the word and thirsty souls for the water of the word so that we may celebrate and triumph in the knowledge of your son, the epinosis knowledge of the son of God. And may that be the case also tonight. Open our eyes, the eyes of faith, the eyes of our perceptiveness, that we may continue to grasp and comprehend the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of Christ that passes knowledge so that we may in turn be filled up with all the fullness of God. We ask this in his name. Amen. Romans 9.27 is an objection, speaking of the teacher's part here, an objection from the teacher, or if you want, and we can't know absolute certainty if we want, perhaps it's Paul taking the place of an interlocutor here and anticipating an objection because in 925 and 26, he refers really to the cross of Christ where Israel is both called not my people and my people at the same time. He's pressing, of course, toward a goal in which all Israel, he announces, will be saved, and all Israel will be saved only as all the nations come in or come into the salvific will of God. So the translation that we have for Romans 9.27, this is an objection from the teacher, but Isaiah cries over Israel, saying, though the number of the sons of Israel is as the grains of the sands of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Now, this has every characteristic of an objection to what Paul has set up to now, because his gospel is profoundly universalistic. And so this, again, comes out as an objection. What are you going to do with that verse, Paul? 
And then he adds in verse 28, the objector says, for the Lord will complete and cut short what he does on earth. He's interpreting this. This objector is interpreting this passage as only a tiny remnant or percentage of the people of Israel will end up being saved and the rest will be not saved in the eternal day. And so he interprets history. He interprets the short work that God does on earth as the salvation of a tiny remnant of Israel and not as the salvation of all. So he says, for the Lord will complete and cut short what he does on earth. He's quoting here from Isaiah ten twenty-two and 23. And that means, in other words, what God does in the course of history. He does quickly and wraps up with finality. In verse 29, and just as Isaiah predicted, he thinks he's really stacking up an objection here. He predicted in Isaiah 1.9, had the Lord of the armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, not left behind a seed, we would have become as Sodom and we would have come to resemble Gomorrah. I've already done a commentary on that that is based in Ezekiel 16.55 in which Paul in which Ezekiel shows that God is going to restore even Sodom to her originally intended condition, the, the condition intended by God for all of humanity. So the point that Paul is going to respond with is that the time of the cutting off of Israel, that's a great section of Israel, the hardened part, the unbelieving part, the time of the cutting off of Israel will itself be cut off and cut short. The time in which Israel is cut off, seemingly, by unbelief, their own unbelief, that time will be cut short. So the time of the cutting off of Israel, that's Israel according to the flesh, Paul identifies that, gives them that name in 1 Corinthians ten eighteen. will itself be cut off by a salvific judgment Remember, the judgments of God are all saving in their effect and saving in their result. It's a saving transformation in which the old hardened majority of Israel is destroyed, but in a transformative judgment that destroys their not-my-people-ness and transforms them into my people. Again, in the sphere of history, and this is where the great, there has to be a great distinction, a great differentiation has to come into our consciousness. The Word of God has to rightly divide between history and eschatology. What God does in history is saves only a remnant of Israel, historically speaking. But what he does in eschatology and in the final event, which we call the crucifixion of Christ, manifested in the parousia, he saves all of Israel, as well as all of humankind. So in the sphere of history, and that's important, only a remnant will be saved, even though the sons of Israel are innumerable as the sands of the seashores. Now, that's how innumerable the redeemed Israel will be. In the future, you can have a vision of an innumerable company of people 
Revelation 7 explores that possibility, and not possibility, but prophetic reality. Again, speaking eschatologically and not merely historically, the innumerable sons, that is, all Israel, will be saved because of the fact that Yahweh executes his will and his word quickly. Quickly, because a thousand years is as one day with the Lord, and one day is a thousand years. He executes his will quickly and decisively on the earth. Notice that. With righteousness, the majority text and the modern Greek Bible in Isaiah 10, 22, and 23 has the phrase en dikaiosune, which is the key word in Romans, one of the key words, between dikaiosune and pistis or faith and apocalypto, we have some key words. Dikaiosune is D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. Dikaiosune. And dikaiosune means righteousness, but as we have seen in Romans, Dikaiosune, means the righteous act of God in Christ, the righteous saving act of God in Christ. So Isaiah prophesies here, in reality, in Isaiah 10, 22, and 23, he prophesies an overwhelming destruction or a destruction which is overflowing with righteousness. Weird, a destruction overflowing with a saving act. Only the cross of Christ, the crucified Messiah, whom God raised from the dead, makes sense of a simultaneous act of destruction and salvation. And that's what we call Christ and him crucified. In the crucified Christ, God says, no, not my people, not beloved. In the resurrected crucified Christ, God says, yes, my beloved, my greatly loved ones to all humankind. I refer back to messages that we had in the past for this. This is all kind of summing up where we've been before already. So his word is quickly executed on earth. In fact, ultimately, that means his word says tetelestai. On the earth, God's word was quickly executed executed and finished in Christ's death and God raised him from the dead and so what Isaiah 10 22 to 23 is really predicting is a divine deliverance by a transformative judgment in which the Adamic ontology of Israel after the flesh is destroyed and the new Israel of God is created by God's justice. That's Isaiah 10, 22 to 23 in connection with Romans 9, 27 and 28. So again, the finishing of God's worth on earth quickly and finally, in the most important sense, has already occurred in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so this is a place where we fire an arrow from 9:27 and 28 to Romans 11:26 cuz where Paul's going has to be held in front of us at all times 
The objective, where he's going, is 1126. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. That goes to everything he says, really, in all of Romans up to that point, but especially in Romans 9. So we could actually go from Romans 9.27 to 11.26 and say, but Isaiah cries over Israel, saying, though the number of the sons of Israel is as the grains of the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved, for the Lord will complete and cut short what he does on earth. Had the Lord of the, just as Isaiah predicted, had the Lord of the armies not left behind a seed, we would have become as Sodom and we would have come to resemble Gomorrah. Shoot that right into 1126. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In other words, the remnant in history that actually confesses Jesus Christ and has believed in Jesus Christ, the remnant of Israel that believes in him is indicative of or representative of the whole of Israel redeemed. The hardened part of Israel, the unbelievers of Israel, do not represent the whole of Israel. The tiny remnant represents the whole of Israel. And so the remnant that God has saved within history indicates his ultimate salvation of the innumerable company of Israel and all the nations for that matter. So more universally than 1126 is 1130. Look at 1130. And again, I've already translated this. Romans 1130 to 32. As you, now Paul's chiding the Gentile Christians, as you, Gentile Christians, once disobeyed, that means as pagan unbelievers, but now you've received mercy, which includes the eliciting of their faith. So now they, he's speaking in context of the hardened part of Israel, who were now disobedient and unbelieving, whom these Gentile Christians in Rome saw reflected in their Jewish Christian brethren. He says, as you, Gentile Christians, once disobeyed as pagan unbelievers, but now have received mercy, so they, that part of Israel that you think God forsook, have also now disobeyed, which means they have disbelieved or become unfaithful, so that... They can go to hell. No, I don't see that in there. I don't see that in there. So that they, God can annihilate them. No, don't see. So God can eternally damn them. I don't see that either. I see so that the same mercy given to you, they will also receive. For God has shut up all human beings in disobedience closed them all in in order to have mercy on them all that's really the climax of Romans argument Paul's argument in Romans and there are objections to it but what is mercy mercy is always a saving mercy not according to righteous deeds that we have done, 
But according to his mercy, he saved us, says Titus 3.5. Mercy is the basis upon which God saves. So, the upshot of my teaching here is that the argument of Paul for what is known as the truth of the gospel, that phrase becomes the most important, one of the most important phrases in Galatians, the truth of the gospel. The upshot of my teaching here, and you remember, Peter, with whom Paul had a great antagonistic, even hostile relationship that he biographically shows in Galatians. Peter was remonstrated by Paul and pulled up short and called on the carpet because why? He was not living according to the truth of the gospel. Living according to the truth of the gospel. He withdrew from eating with Gentiles under the pressure of James, the Lord's brother, who was just about as far off as you can get from the gospel of Paul the gospel of the grace of God. We're going to hit this. There's a lot of controversial points in Galatians. We haven't even really gotten controversial in Romans, believe it or not. The upshot of my teaching here then, and throughout Romans, is that the argument of Paul for the truth of the gospel is unflinchingly and unrelentingly universalistic. Throughout Romans, the epistle, he's making a case for the cosmic rectification, cosmic rectification, the setting right of everything with the intention and with the expressed pastoral intention here of breaking down barriers made of biases among the saints in Rome. And anywhere else this epistle is read and studied. Anywhere else, anywhere else. Throughout Romans, the epistle, which we simply call RTE, Paul's case is more and more airtight. The reason he lets opposing views speak, he gives them air to breathe in order to shut off their air supply. And that's why his argument, I call it airtight. More and more, Paul's case is airtight so that no objection is allowed to live and breathe. Paul has truly been appointed, and this can be written as a kind of title over all of his epistles. In Philippians 1.16, Paul has been appointed for the defense and the establishment of the gospel. The defense and the establishment of the gospel. Now, there should be no negativity on our part toward any fellow believers who do not understand, do not perceive, do not grasp or comprehend the universal horizon of this gospel. Paul's disclosure and the implications of his seeing of Jesus Christ opened up this universal thing so that the Christians at the time who were rooted in the proper Christian tradition only had a very faint idea of what God had done in Christ. Paul's gospel takes a faint idea of Christian tradition and blows it up, and he shows those implications. That's all I'm doing. That's all I've been doing in Romans and before Romans, and really since about 2013 and maybe even a little before that. 
in Romans as well as Galatians, and if you look at Galatians, if you want, I've already had, I'm in the middle of three phenomenal commentaries on Galatians, all of which were done post-1985, some of which were done as recently as 2011. Unbelievably awesome commentaries. If you want to look ahead, Galatians 2.5 and 2.14, Galatians 4.16 and 5.7 all have that key phrase, the truth of the gospel, or sometimes just the truth. So in Romans as well as Galatians and all of Paul's epistles, he allows no compromise with opposing views, that is, those that, have view, that oppose the grace of God. He now allows no compromise with opposing views to survive so that the truth of the gospel is now preserved even for us tonight. It's been preserved. And so in one sense, we're all set and appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now let's look at Romans 9.30, where Paul comes in. If you want to put brackets, Paul, close bracket, colon. So Paul says this to that, those, that looks, looks like a pretty powerful objection that he fielded in Romans 9.27 to 29. Verse 30, then Paul says, and this is my translation, what shall I, that's Paul, Say in response to this, then. I can almost picture a little bit of sarcasm in Paul. He's like, whoa, you've hit me with so many heavy verses here. And I received a question recently. That reminds me of a question. Someone said, why didn't Jesus tell the thief on the cross the other one that was continued to malign him, why didn't he say to him, today I'll see you in paradise? Why did he say it only to one and not the other? My answer to that question, the brief answer is, why did he have to? Secondly, how do you know who he was looking at when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise? How do you know? You say, well, the guy that said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he obviously answered him by saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. But does that, I exclude the other guy who just keeps blaspheming him? If everybody that's blaspheming the Lord doesn't go to paradise, then the whole world is going to hell right now, including all your favorite actors on TV. My, so my answer to that is, and because it was an anonymous question, it's probably one of you. I'm sorry if it is, but uh, my, I, I kind of like think, well, is that was why was that question asked? Was it asked to trip up or to challenge the direction we've been going in? I don't think so. Not if it was one of you. Of course not. But my answer to that is simply, why did he have to? So, again, never assume that because something isn't said in Scripture that it proves your case. Sometimes God's silence is more eloquent than the words of men. In fact, the silence of God is more eloquent than the words of men. 
If the Bible tells me that all Israel is going to be saved, and that guy was a Jewish criminal, then I believe he'll be part of the all Israel that is saved. If the Bible tells me that in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, then I think both thieves will be made alive in Christ. Do I have to go through all of our argument that we've been through so far since about 2013 in the middle of Revelation? Or do I not have to do that? But I'll just give you the short answer. Why did he have to? He only said it to one person in the whole course of his ministry. Why didn't he say it to anybody else? I don't know. Because one guy said, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus wanted to say, yeah, this afternoon, you'll, you'll get that answer. This evening. Today. He didn't have to tell the other guy. All right. See, once a question, I don't hardly ever let go of a question. It gets in there and it stays. So then, what shall I say in response to this then? Ooh, how am I going to respond to that? That's a heavy question with all these verses to it. How about this, he says. The Gentiles who were not actively pursuing a status of rectitude have apprehended the status of rectitude, but it's a rectitude that is from faith. And the word is ek, another key phrase, ek, P-I-S-T-E-O-S, ek, pistios, which is referring to Christ's faith in Romans 1.17 and throughout Romans and also Galatians, he said, the Jews have been seeking, as you're going to find out, the Gentiles weren't pursuing. The word here is strongly pursuing. It means to persecute, really. Dioko means to assiduously, industriously, with all they're getting, pursue a status of righteousness, a status of rectitude. They weren't pursuing it, but they've apprehended that. But it's a rectitude that is from faith, ekpistios, Romans 1.17, 3.26, compared with diapistios in Romans 3.22 and 25. In other words, the faithfulness of Christ. And both dia and ek prepositions are both in Romans 3.30. He said, on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ, he justifies the Gentiles. And through dia, the same pistios, faithfulness of Christ, he justifies the Jews. So we're dealing here with a status of rectitude. So again, I get verse 30 again. What shall I, Paul, say in response to this then? How about this? The Gentiles who were not actively pursuing a status of rectitude have apprehended that status of rectitude or righteousness. But it's a rectitude or a status of righteousness that is from faith. That's Messiah's fidelity. A righteousness based on Messiah's fidelity. A status or status that's in compliance with justification by Messiah's faithful death. 
Sunday's messages will bring this into focus more so. So the word I like to use here for righteousness, and it has many meanings, is the rectitude of the Gentiles is on the basis of Messiah's fidelity, and it consists of the very status and condition they find themselves in consists of a participation in that faithfulness. Including, most of all, a participation in Messiah's crucifixion, death, burial, and then resurrection. So verse 31, but Israel, Paul says, Israel, in air quotes, by assiduously pursuing a law that they assumed could lead to a status of rectitude, which I call God-approved livingness, have never arrived at such a law. He, now, he's, this is really twisting a word around a little bit. It's weird, almost. By pursuing a law that they assumed could lead to a status of righteousness, they never arrived. It doesn't say they never arrived at that righteousness. It says they never arrived at that law. Because you know why? Such a law does not exist. A law that leads to righteousness doesn't even exist. So search for it all day long. You'll never find it. The law that gives righteousness doesn't exist. If God could give a law, Paul said in Galatians, and this is where Galatians is starting to gel with Romans, if there was a law that could lead to righteousness, then righteousness would be by the law. But there is no such thing. If there was a law that could give life, then the gift of life would come through adherence to law. But there is no such law. (coughs) It never has existed. Never will. So if you want to just make a reference to this, we're going to continue here. But Galatians 3.21b to 22. Again, Paul says, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, notice how Galatians 3.22 gels with Romans 11.32. We see a phrase here that's similar. But the scripture, now he's talking about not just a scripture, but the scripture. That means the whole Old Testament in toto. The totality of all of the written word of God. The scripture does what? The scripture. In fact, you probably should look at it, but it's in Galatians 3.22. But the scripture has imprisoned everyone and now everything. Under sin. It sounds like God has imprisoned all human beings. In disobedience, another way of saying under sin, to have mercy upon all. Because nobody can extract themselves out from underneath that tyranny, not by any law. So in Galatians 3.22, the scripture, the whole Old Testament in toto, the totality of the written word, has imprisoned everyone and everything. You know what Paul's talking about here? It has imprisoned everyone and everything, including the law of Moses, including the Sinaitic law, the law that was given on 
Sinai by Elohim, small e, gods, angels, by the disposition of angels through the hand of a mediator. And so, just hints of things to come. The scripture imprisoned everyone and now this time everything, including the law itself, under sin. The law itself is under sin. The law given at Sinai is also under sin. It's been hijacked by sin. You want to know the experience of the man or the woman trying to find a status of rectitude by the works of the law? Read Romans 7. It's the most miserable, and it ends up with, oh, wretched, miserable person I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Sin leads to death. So in Romans, in Galatians 3.22, the scripture has imprisoned everyone and everything, including in the context, including the law itself under sin. So that the promise, speaking of the promise given to Abraham, that in his seed, all the nations, including Israel, will be blessed. And that blessing is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that the bless, the promise, that is the spirit, could be given on the basis of what? The faithfulness of Jesus Christ, ek pistios, to those who believe. Now, where does that come in? We're answering that question on Sunday mornings, to those who believe. God does not justify on the basis of your believing. You are justified on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But being justified by his faithful death on the cross, God requires that we live by faith. So he evokes or kindles or gifts us with faith to participate in the faithfulness of Messiah. That's our Christian life. That's not a means of justification. That is our Christian way of living. That's more to be clarified. But where I'm going here is this. The law, if there was a law, if God could invent a law, or if God did invent a law, you fulfill these things perfectly for the rest of your life, and you'll be justified. If there was such a law, then God would leave it alone and say, you're justified, or you come to a status of rectitude, and I'm pleased with you by your fulfillment of the law. There is no such law. It doesn't say Israel sought after righteousness here. It says They sought after a law that could make them righteous, but never found that law because there isn't any such thing. I still kid my sisters around Christmas time because when I knew, is there anyone here that doesn't know this yet, that there's no Santa Claus? Um, I knew that there wasn't a Santa Claus. And my parents said, don't tell your little sisters because they still have fun with it. And so I would go up to my little sister and I'd say, I got something to tell you. And I wouldn't say, there's no such thing as Santa Claus. I went, na 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 And they would say, what do you mean by that? And I said, I can't tell you. na 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 Well, I would have to say to those who are seeking a law for righteousness, there's no such thing as a law for righteousness. Just like a chubby old elf doesn't slide down your chimney 
and has one bag that he can give to billions of kids, the toys out of one little bag. You say, that's ins- of course it's insane. And does it withdraw, does it draw attention away from Jesus Christ? Of course it does. This is an evil age. Of course it does. And do you think that's a terrible evil? No, I don't think it's a terrible. I think it's a lot of things. Inane, for one thing. But the point being here, there is no such thing as a law that can give life or a law that can Result in righteousness. So what the law could not do in that it was weak because of the flesh. God did. Sending his son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Born under the law. Do you realize that when he was born under the law. What that means. It means he was sharing our plight. Even though sinless. He was sharing the plight of human beings under sin, even though he was sinless. And he destroyed sin on the cross. So according to Galatians 3.21, the scripture brings everything into a prison, an imprisonment under sin, and that includes the law. The whole point is that the law is under sin. It's hijacked by sin. So you can see where this is going. Paul is showing the failure of the majority of those whom he calls elsewhere Israel according to mere physical descent. 1 Corinthians 10, 19, or 10, 18 actually calls it Israel kata sarka. Israel kata sarka. He is simply showing the failure of those whom he calls Israel according to mere physical descent to arrive at God-approved livingness. And this is going to get at the root of the bias of many Gentile Christians, however, because they will have assumed already, many of them assumed, and they've attended to the misplaced enthusiasm that Israel was cut off as a result of this. That God had cut them off. So they could be, so the Gentiles could be grafted in. Remember, curb your enthusiasm, Paul said. You say they were cut off so that we could be grafted in. But then Paul says, yeah, but they are going to be grafted in again. If God grafted in you wild olive branches to a cultivated olive tree, how much more can he take the branches that were broken off and graft them right back into the cultivated olive tree? You're you're living in a bias, a prejudice toward your Jewish Christian brethren. So the Jews were, the Jewish Christians in Rome were biased against the Gentiles because they, the Jewish Christians were influenced by this Jewish Christian missionary who said in order to become the true Israel, you have to be circumcised and follow the law. And Paul says, I'm showing you here, this can't be. They can't, there is no such law. So where is he going? His pastoral heart is getting to the root of the bias of many Gentile Christians who will assume that this failure by Israel after the flesh means that God has finally rejected Israel. That's the root cause of what we call anti-Semitism, which is anti-Jewish sentiment. We've already attended to this misplaced enthusiasm in Better Call Paul. 
So I may not have to rehash it again. So just as many Christian Jews or Jewish Christians in Rome harbored a prejudicial view of the Gentile Christians in Rome and elsewhere, wherever they were found, as not being justified because of a failure to be circumcised and follow the Sinaitic law, so, on the other hand, many Gentile Christians in Rome nursed an intolerance toward the Jewish Christians in Rome and elsewhere for still being part of a supposedly rejected people. Paul is presenting the antidote to both of these expressions of resatamon by aiming at the universal, this is the last word in Romans in one sense, the universal promeity of God, promeity, P-R-O-M-E-I-T-Y, the promeity of God. And remember shorthand, promeity. That means God and God for us is one and the same. You can't have God without God for us. God for us is God. And Jesus Christ is God for us. Jesus Christ is the only lasting reality in all the world right now. Jesus Christ as God for all the human race is the only reality right now, the ultimate reality. Jesus Christ is reality. He is the reality of the reconciliation of God with all of humanity. That's who he is. Once you see him, you don't get involved in a political battle in which there is a third party instigating ideological warfare in America to totally destroy the nation. Of course, you know that's happening, don't you? Take sides in it, and you're taking sides with the third party who's destroying the nation. And that third party is a principality, not a human being. And so we're trying to stay above the fray here. We could say many things that would address the situation, but I'm not interested in addressing the situation. I'm not a politician. I wouldn't step down to be a politician. And by that I mean a preacher of Jesus Christ to me is all I want to be. So, as we wind down tonight, promeity of God, the universal promeity of God is what Paul is aiming at. That being that God is none other than God for all human beings. This is a promeity which he demonstrated by not sparing, but freely handing over his only eternally begotten son on behalf of us all. To put away our collusion with sin. 
if God is for us all in this way, how can anyone rationalize being against another as if that other is destined or even predestined even more horribly by God to eternal condemnation? How can you look at another person if you know the primity? In fact, if you know God, how can you look at another person and judge that somehow they've been destined or even worse, predestined by God to eternal condemnation or to utter annihilation? How can you do it? You can't. Not if you see the tr- your eyes see these truths by faith. You can't think that way anymore. You just can't do it. So you're destined to love. Sorry. Closing Romans 9.32. Why then, Paul says, why? What shall I say to this, he says. Let me read the whole thing so it'll make sense. You're going to get an idea where we're going with this Targumic paraphrase. What shall I say in response to this then? How about this? The Gentiles who are not actively pursuing a status of rectitude have apprehended that status, but it's a rectitude that is from faith or on the basis of the faithful death of Christ. But Israel, by assiduously pursuing with the zeal of a persecutor, a law that they assume could lead to a status of righteousness, have never arrived at such a law. This law doesn't exist. Why, he says in verse 32, because they were not pursuing the status of rectitude on the basis of faithfulness. That's Christ's faithfulness. But on the basis of works in compliance with the law of Moses. Which Paul radically and controversially calls a law that came by the disposition of angels without God even around. Angels that one time God called Elohim, whom he judged in order to ultimately redeem, of course. Why? Because they were not pursuing the status of rectitude on the basis of faithfulness, but on the basis of works. Here's what he says. This is awesome. While pursuing, we have to get this into our mind. You can't see this unless you understand what he's saying here. While they were pursuing, they're running after it. They're running after it. While they're pursuing, they're going full tilt boogie, as the old rock song used to say. They're going all out, pursuing. While pursuing, they struck their foot against the stone. That trips people up. Picture yourself running through some woods and there's a root or a rock there. And everybody that goes down there finds out, especially when there's snow-covered ground, they're going to trip over this rock. It's inevitable. Well, that's what happened. They tripped over the stone that trips people up. That's where we get the word, are you tripping? As it is written, as it is written, kathos gegraptai, this is the eighth use of 14 uses of it, two times seven, perfect witness. As it is written, look, I am laying a stone in Zion. Who's talking now? God is. I'm laying a stone in Zion that makes people trip. It's a rock of offense. 
Petron Scandalon. We will learn in Galatians that the Scandalon is the cross of Christ, the tripping stone. I'm laying in Zion a stone that makes people trip, stumble. It's a rock of offense, Petron Scandalon, the crucified Christ. But those who believe in him will not be put to shame. Now, Paul himself knows very well what it means to trip over the tripping stone. He tripped over it. With respect to this, this is what Gerhard Abeling, E-B-E-L-I-N-G, Gerhard Abeling. I read a quote by him once by Hayes, and it knocked me right against the back of my chair. And so I said, I got to get a book by Abeling. And I found out that Abeling did an exposition of Galatians called The Truth of the Gospel. And could only get it used. So, na 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 There's no such thing as this book, unless you get it, you know, I guess you can get it republished. He wrote the following about the shock that Paul experienced. The shock by which God ultimately revealed his irresistible grace that overwhelmed Paul. Quote, the earth-shaking change for Paul consists in this. What had been expected of the law now holds true of Jesus Christ. Grace has become the determining factor. In the case of Paul himself, it outweighs all his efforts to resist. Divine election had been at work even before he saw the light of day. Grace is always prevenient, and there's nothing that it cannot overcome. With respect to Christ... Paul's blindness was turned into sight through God's revelation of his son to him. And this ends any speculation as to whether the revelation could have been the result of Paul's own seeking and finding. Paul knows all about not seeking Jesus Christ, but finding him right in front of him on the outskirts of Damascus. So Paul could relate not only to his fellow Jews who by seeking a status of personal rectitude on the basis of works never did attain that law and never that status. But he could also relate to the Gentiles who apprehended that status on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ. Now, in closing, the future tense that Romans 9.33, quoting Isaiah 28.16. In fact, 9.33 is a conflation. It's, Paul does this a lot. He mixes two verses in one quote. Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah 28.16. His reply to the objection, the misuse of Scripture, is by a proper use of Scripture. Jesus did the same thing with Satan. Satan quotes scripture. He miss, he doesn't even misquote it, but he quotes it and misapplies it. Jesus said, it is also written, it is written, it is written three times and defeats Satan. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's taking a misuse of the scripture or a misapplication of it, and now he's properly applying it. And so Paul could relate both to fellow Jews who seek a status of personal rectitude but never find it. He said, hey, I was perfect and blameless according to the law, but at the same time I was persecuting God's own community in Philippians 3. 
circumcised the eighth day, law, blameless. I went through, the, I, I did the whole thing, but I never found a status of rectitude. So he understood where his Jewish brethren were going. He said, I'm also an example, an example in 1 Timothy 1.16 of all those who will come to believe in Jesus Christ, meaning all Israel in the future. He's an example of what's going to happen with all of Israel in resurrection when they see what he saw on the road to Damascus and become totally transformed. So the future tense used there will not be put to shame in the future tense in Romans 9.33, quoting Isaiah 28.16, refers to the eschatological day of judgment when no one, when the person will not be put to shame. Please notice that it does not say those who obey the law will not be put to shame. But those who believe in the crucified Messiah, whom God raised from the dead, those who believe in the crucified Messiah, like you have and like you do, are people whose faith complies with their justification by his faithfulness. If we say I'm justified by my personal faith, we're not complying with the fact that our justification is by Christ's faithfulness. Our very faith in Jesus Christ or coming to believe in him means that we have come to believe that our justification is by his faithfulness. So there's got to be a big adjustment right now among the church in the church of Jesus Christ, a big adjustment. And this will come more and more into focus. If you don't get it all now, you will. The real question here is this. How significant is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ to you? You. And I speak of me in you. I am you and you are me and we are we and we are all together and I am the walrus. So it's, it's all, I'm speaking of... Goo, 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 goo. So, the real question is, just how significant is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ to you? To Paul, I don't boast in anything except it. Put another way, how do you assess the Christ event? How do you assess it? The Jewish Christian missionaries that opposed Paul assessed it this way. Thank God Jesus the Messiah came to die for the past sins of Israel, but we still got to fulfill the law, be circumcised to be saved. What value does the cross have to you? Is its value only as an auxiliary to your performance, whether it's works or believing? Or is its value all-encompassing for salvation and for God-approved livingness? One more quote, and I'll close. With regard to this verse, consider a man that we considered a lot in the beginning, Robert Jewett, J-E-W-E-T-T. 
him and Paul Menier gave me the whole perspective about the biases in Rome, but he says this, the fused quotation from Isaiah. I like that phrase, the fused quotation from Isaiah. 933, that's, Gen- that's Isaiah 28, 16 with 814. Sustains Paul's argument commencing in 9-6. See, he draws zero back to 9-6, as I've already done. That Jewish repudiation of the gospel does not indicate that God's word has failed. If it is God who has laid the messianic stone in Zion, there is a divine purpose in Israel's current stumbling that will become fully apparent in the revelation of the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles in 11, 7 through 12, and 25 through 32. God's word, this is my conclusion, God's word concerning his all-saving will does not fail just because of people's unbelief during the course of history. So, Father, we thank you for that assurance. We're grateful that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And we're learning very simply, and it's all come down to really a simplicity, that being justified by the faithful death of Christ, you require us now to live by faith. It's an ethical living now a living that is a participation with the faithfulness of your son, Jesus Christ, a faithfulness that continues where the faithfulness of the man, Jesus, to death of the cross continues in the corporate one new man. We live by a faithfulness that works by love.